Welcome to episode 166 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Levin. Today, we had a very fun episode. We caught up with Meili Koo and Andy Matushak, uh, a double guest episode, Meili's second time on the show. They work together at Khan Academy on the future of education. And so a lot of the time we spent was on thinking about what the right problems are to solve and how to solve problems and how we learn to solve problems. It was totally different than most episodes we've ever done. It's really, really fun to do and really interesting. You can literally hear my brain just trying to keep up with uh, these two wicked smart people. There might be vocabulary words in the show notes. <laughs> there are vocabulary words in the show notes, I promise. Thank you to Maylee and Andy for coming and hanging out with us. Before we get into the episode, though, we have two sponsors we want to thank for making this episode possible. First up, you know them, you love them, we love them. I Wait. love them. No, no, Brian, you can't. They're mine. Wayno. Wayno. <laughs> Wayno is an agency doing incredible work building products for humans, and that is an awesome thing. They are based out of San Francisco, New York, and Reykjavik. We have a bunch of friends who work there doing incredible, incredible things. We just hung out on Friday, actually. We had the first ever, ever Pixel Pong. Marshall Bach and I hosted it, and uh, Linda Eliason from Wayno was on it, and it was incredible. You should go check that out. It's very funny. Uh, there will be a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Wayno is sponsoring the podcast because they told us they enjoy listening and they want to yes. get in front of other people that enjoy listening to us and this podcast. They're one of our longest term sponsors. Like they've been backing us since so long ago. Yeah. And they're not trying to sell anything. They just want you to check out their work and you should. Their work is amazing. Their case studies are inspiring. They're dribble, gorgeous. Uh, their Twitter, hilarious. Their Instagram, beautiful. Like, Everything like is this, on point. This service, adjective. This service, adjective. That's Everything nice is on point. Go look at them. They're at wayno.co, U-E-N-O dot C-O. That's all they want. Just go check out their work. Say hi. If you're looking for a job, you can click the careers link in their header. Of course, tell them we sent you. And we'll have links in the show notes to follow them on Twitter, Instagram, check out their dribble. And they're they're actually looking for a sublet in their NYC office. So if you want to just go work around these people and you're in New York City, go check it out. They're just looking for people who are ready to pick a desk and start working. So lots of little things. Thanks again to Wayno so much for sponsoring the episode. Once again, go to wayno.co. That's U-E-N-O dot C-O. Our second sponsor is someone we haven't heard from in a while, Hired. Hired is the best place for designers to find opportunities, and get matched with companies. They make job searching faster, focused, and stress-free. So instead of you going out and applying to hundreds of companies or dozens of companies, instead you just apply once to Hired, and then once you're accepted, employers apply to hire you. So over a four-week time span, you're going to receive personalized interview requests, upfront salary information, so that you can make informed decisions about the best jobs. Hired gives you a dedicated talent advocate who is just a person that has your back, providing you with unbiased career coaching, helping you out to put your best foot forward with potential employers. There's over 4,000 employers on the platform, including big, big brands like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. It's totally up to you to pick whether you want to work at a big company or go for the smaller thing. Your privacy, of course, is of utmost importance to hired. They hide your profile from your current and past employers, so no one's going to know that you're you're looking. Uh, and of course, the best part is that it's free. There's no exceptions. You just apply on Hired, and they're going to put your resume in front of over 4,000 employers. And there's a bonus. If you sign up using our link, you can earn 
a double bonus whenever you get hired. So normally they give you a thousand dollar signing bonus uh, anytime you get hired through Hired. But if you go to Hired.com slash design details and sign up from there, uh, that'll double your bonus. So you get two grand extra whenever you get a job. So new job, uh, employers hiring you, not the other way around, and a $2,000 bonus. So once again, that link is Hired.com slash design details. If you're looking for a new gig, sign up at Hired. It's free. And they're going to help you land in a place where you're happy. Thanks again to Hired for sponsoring the show. So now let's get into episode 166 with Maylee Koo and Andy Matushak. Hey, everyone. I'm Andy Matushak. I work at Khan Academy, where I do research with Maylee, who you're going to be hearing from in a moment, uh, as well as engineering. Hi, I'm Maylee. I also work at Khan Academy with Andy in research. It's a small long-term research group that the two of us founded recently, um, as well as directing design. And you're back. I'm back. This is your second episode. That's right. Two part two. Back part two. Part two, and I brought a friend. Yeah. Hello. Andy's part one. Am I allowed to be here as an engineer? Is that okay? Uh, technically, no. I mean, I kind of do some designing things. <laughs> I said it was but, okay. You know. <laughs> of uh, course, it's okay. Right. Well, <laughs> I feel like. I know you because I've linked to your one talk a bajillion times. <laughs> I know at least that bit of you. you for that same hour of my yeah. life, just over and over and over again. So when I spotted you at XOXO the first night, I was like, I got to go talk to this guy. <laughs> and, I, and were you glad that you did? I think we promptly got into chiralities in birds. That did happen. What? And then working with your life partner. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think I, I think I asked you questions about your marriage like within the first 20 minutes of our conversation. <laughs> wow. That's really sweet. It got interesting. Are you both recent so you, I know you're recently married. Are you recently married? Recently 5 years ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> but then we also talked about quantum biodynamics and whether they exist. Yeah, this is the <laughs> Yeah, on. pretty light conversation, you know. This is what happens. This is what happens. How do birds fly? I mean, it's, it's actually like... A, so we met at XOXO. <laughs> I heard XOXO played a part in YouTube meeting. Yeah. Ah, so it, graceful. It, it played a part in the two of us deciding to try something different with our lives. What is this XOXO thing? Yeah, it's a festival of independent <laughs> art. Yeah. Yeah. And independent <laughs> making of things and games and tabletops and movies and podcasts. And yeah, it's all about the indie Mm. Um, one thing that's happened in recent years that I really appreciate about the Andes is that they've also really been deliberate about curating um, a diverse both set of speakers and attendees um, and a diversity that moves beyond tokenism. So, Mainly he's not talking about me right now. Yeah. And the Andes are the organizers of the conference. Andy right. Bayo and Andy McMillan. Right. Yes, yeah, so many Andes. And so uh, in 2013... Uh, Maylee and I went to XO, XO together where uh, there was much celebration of independence and strong will. And I think that I thought it was mostly going to be stories about, you know, how did you get here? How did you, how did you do this? Uh, and instead, it was mostly uh, stories of depression and hardship and uh, of struggle. And um, it was tremendous inspiration for me to uh, be independent in similar ways. It's It's interesting how much of it is about the hardships although it's ridiculously inspirational by kind of having the conversation about how you get through them yeah right like it's it was all like hey i made money despite how hard this thing was like i survived like it worked i think to some extent it's also like not necessarily getting through the struggles but accepting like a certain ambient level of struggle yeah. all the time <laughs> the <Exactly>. background <laughs> struggle level yeah like you just you just have a new baseline <laughs> It's the background noise of hardship. 
it answers the the fear thing. I mean, I, th- I think that's that's really what was holding me back. And there, there were a couple of things, but that was that was among them. Why why don't you do that thing that you mm-hmm. keep saying that you want to do? Well, you know, there's this, and there's that, and there's all these analytical reasons. But you know, ultimately, it's fear. You two were both at Apple at the time, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Different teams, same team. Different teams. Mm-hmm. Different teams. We had um. There was one thing that we worked on that my team worked on super early on, and Andy's team wound up um, implementing so that it was actually usable by real people. Um, so you were prototyping, and you were UI kit. Yeah, UI kit, and um, so it was. It was kind of you know late, later on in the design process, but um, you know there there were there were echoes and reverberations of. Um, of the work that Melee had done mm. uh, in my own work. And so uh, we got together at XOXO uh, over dinner uh, late at night, maybe not over dinner, I think something something else, and uh, lamented, why can't, why, why aren't we doing this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I'm trying to remember whether or not the, our sort of like Friday gatherings of toy making happened before or after XOXO. It was after. It was afterward. Was this the XOXO when Cable spoke? Cable no, that was or? the following year. It was the following year. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so sometime after all of this inspiration happened, Andy and I realized that we just wanted to be able to make light, goofy, casual, fun things a little bit more because some of the work that you wind up doing, I guess, at Apple is very serious. Mm -hmm. I feel like that can be a lot of jobs. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So we decided to meet up every Friday and just make like a little joyful interaction that used... Some aspect, I don't think we even went this far, but I, I guess I, I may as well express it now, that use some aspect of computation in an interesting way to make some some little doodle. It's like a little interactive hmm. doodle. Example? So, yeah. Are, are any you... of these live on the internet that people can find? No. Oh, wow. <laughs> no. You know, everything Everything from the Apple days, it just had to be burned. Ah, uh, oh, yes. God. <laughs> I do recall this. I Gosh, I made, I made an entire, like, Augmented reality game play in San Francisco, and at the end of the day, we just shredded it because it's like, well, I can't publish this. But um, yeah, examples. Um, Mei Li made uh, 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 a Mona Lisa painting uh, whose eyes would follow you as you moved. Uh-huh. So just the Mona Lisa. <laughs> yeah, it was just a, a creepy painting of the Mona Lisa. But I think the important thing was that uh, the face tracking, like your face coordinates that it hooked into, didn't track directly with her eyeballs. It was that the tendency of the motion of her eyeballs wanted to follow your face location so that it would it was like a much more natural movement hmm. than the jittery direct sensor data. Ah. So that was like the little nuance to it. And Andy put together this thing, what was it called? It was called Stiff, stiff Upper, upper lip. lip. And he, <laughs> <laughs> What was this thing? <laughs> Tell so me more. <laughs> it was this app that downloaded funny images from the internet one at a time. And if you smiled, it would blank it out and say... What did it say? You lose or you like, don't smile. You had to look at funny images as long as you could. And not smile. Without smiling. <laughs> and it, it, there was a leaderboard. Thanks for taking the joy out of the internet, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> why? Yeah, no. So so for this, there was no answer as to why. And, and that was that was the thing. Like we were. That's insane. Uh, I'll, I'll speak for myself. Uh, very, very frustrated and stifled uh, in my work. Um, I felt like it didn't really matter. Um, XOXO spoke to me mostly that year um in a, a very creative independent sense it was it was less of a sense of i need to do something that follows a particular set of values as much as a sense of freedom and so um it, making playful things with melee was an expression of that freedom there, there wasn't a why at that moment earlier you mentioned fear did you ever like 
hone in on what your fear was about doing independent things or perhaps leaving Apple at the time? Hmm. Let me try to zoom back a couple of years. Um, it was pretty indistinct. Um, I think that I feared being alone. I still fear being alone, but you know, uh, worked through it. Um, uh, I feared not having, um, uh, structures supporting me in the same way, not having the, the sort of edifice of brand, not having, uh, <laughs> Oh yes. Uh, <laughs> that. that thing. Yeah. The, the Facebook thing, you know, I, I get it. Um, you know, uh, there's, mo there's money fears. Uh, ultimately, there's the fear that um, this, you're not going to succeed. What tipped you over that fear? Or did you somehow just, like, did you get over the fear or did you just learn to live with the fear? Uh, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm not over it. I think I just live with it. Okay. Uh, and I, I, th I think that that was the message from that that was the message in that moment from that festival that helped me. And you know, there, were, there were other messages from other times. But, um, yeah, I feel like I still live with it, and that's that's okay. <laughs> some days it's worse than others. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I think at some point in time after that XOXO, Andy and I got together for dinner, and we were talking about things that we dreamed of building, and it was clear that both of us cared a lot about building interactions for learning. Both of us had worked so much and so deeply in interactions, like designing or building really juicy, continuous interactions where things move with you as you move as opposed to the kind of the old point and click, like you tap something and refreshes mm -hmm. kind of interaction model. And that sort of continuous feedback felt like so ripe for, for instruction, for learning, for exploration and curiosity. Um, so when we were at dinner talking about it, we realized that, hey, maybe we should, we should go do this somewhere somehow. I don't think we knew yet how. But at that point, you'd already been making the fun interactions together every Friday. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I'd actually, I'd been writing about um, like novel education ideas on my blog for a few years. Mm -hmm. um, so it had been, it was actually something I was working towards. Um, like at that XOXO, I had already decided, like I was saving up. Like the goal was I want to be able to pay myself a grad student stipend indefinitely and just be an independent researcher. Um, yeah. And I was terrified of doing that, but like that was, that was the plan. That was the goal. And, and the goal was to research education, educational topics. Yeah, I think I would, and I was kind of coming up to something similar. I was like considering leaving and just independently researching a bunch of things that I'd had the urge to build, see how they did out in the world. Mm -hmm. Especially because at HID prototyping, we generated huge amounts of ideas for interactions all the time. And at some point in time, I sort of saw that pattern. I think we talked about this a little bit last time. I sort of saw a pattern in that I was generating lots of learning ideas. Um, constantly learning and creative tools were the two things. What do you mean by learning ideas? Oh, ideas for interactions that would help people learn things. Okay. What kinds of things? Like anything? Like learn any topic? Or were you thinking of things Tell us in all particular? these ideas you gave Apple. No, no, no. Like, uh, <laughs> are you talking about formal K-12 education here? Are you talking about like learning technical skills, learning trade? Or is it abstract enough to apply to all of that? Um, I think oftentimes they were they were more conceptual, more concept-based. And a lot of the concept-based stuff might fall into K-12 education or might not. But there's just some things that the digital medium is fantastic at conveying mm -hmm. um, that like a static picture is not or a bunch of text is not or even a static video that you can't interact with is not as, not as great and not as rich. So you both thought you were going to independently research this. Yeah. But what actually happened? What actually happened? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess it started 
on, started on with my you. Side. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. So I, I was a few years away from being able to do that. And um, so, so Ben Kamins, who used to run engineering at Khan Academy, reached out to me and said, uh, hey, uh, would you be interested in helping us out at all? And I said, I really don't see how that would be interesting to me. In this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, yeah, um, I, I think we are, we are a universe apart in values. Um, and, you know, I, on, I, I almost didn't reply, but on, on, on a whim, we met up and um, we, we started talking and it became clear that uh, there, there was some alignment. There's desire to do more than just digitizing lectures and just making like a, a digital version in the textbook, but they didn't know how mm. exactly. Um, and there wasn't anyone to do it exactly. And that wasn't actually what they wanted me to do <laughs> when when they were reaching out to me. I mean, what they wanted was to have a mobile engineering team. It's like, oh, oh my gosh, you know, uh, uh, mobile is eating the world and our product is primarily a desktop product and we better fix that. Um, so th that's what they were hoping for. And so we, we eventually made kind of a deal where it's like, okay, uh, I, 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 will, I will make you a mobile engineering team. You will have apps and uh, also you will fund my research. Uh, and But I knew uh, that in order to be able to create the kinds of learning technologies and invent the kinds of things I wanted to invent, that I needed a partner uh, on the design side. And so I reached out to Meili. I think around that time, yeah, you, you mentioned to me, you kind of told a similar story. You said, yeah, they're not thinking the things that I thought they were. They're not limiting their things to the thing that I thought they were limiting themselves to, which is sort of a translation of lectures and, and worksheets. Hmm. Um, they eventually really want to go beyond that, and they're really supportive of the kind of thinking that you and I have talked about. So I had actually had an email in my inbox from 2010. <laughs> Um, when a mutual friend <laughs> you are on top of it <laughs> yeah Holy oh shit. yeah maybe it's in box zero yo. how do you even find an email from 2010 I mean search is kind of amazing these days <laughs> um, oh yeah that one from <laughs> if you know what you're looking <laughs> that for that one from four years ago mm. yeah exactly so a mutual friend of Sal and I's had introduced us over email like four years Sal earlier Sal Khan Sal Khan that's right had introduced us four years earlier and at that time, you know, I was looking at designing the next iPad or thinking about the interactions for the next iPad. And he had mentioned to me, oh, you know, I have this friend that's starting this um, this way of moving education online and he has this great mission. And I looked at it and I was like, yeah, that is a really great mission. I'm not a web designer. <laughs> I wasn't at that point in time. I'd, I guess I had been working on some things for the web, but they were these like super rich web apps mm -hmm. very different from like you know sort of traditional web layout and so when Andy and I started talking I thought well maybe I'll just reply to this email so I did there's this email thread that literally jumps from 2010 to 2014 is it 2014 yeah that's right um and then so we started talking as well and it was kind of similar to the scenario with Andy where it was like yes I mean that's nice that you want to do the research we actually need help with mobile design um, I think at the time there wasn't there wasn't really that much mobile design experience on the team, and as I'd worked on the first iPhone, so I had a little bit, little bit of internal Apple mobile experience. Mm -hmm. um, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you could call it that. Yeah, it's a, it feels a lot different from external app mobile design for some reason, but anyway, 
maybe it shouldn't. So they wanted me to help with design. So I started out helping with mobile design. And then eventually they said, could you help with the web stuff? And I said, sure, I'll help with that. And now I've sort of wound up directing the design team. And I think I'd always kind of wanted that experience. And it's fun. And it's an awesome team. But it, it can be challenging to try and do both. I think Andy and I both experienced that. Right. So you have this long-term research initiative. That's right. Yeah. What is the, the goal of the initiative? I think we got into this a little bit last time. But uh -huh. For anyone that hasn't listened. Pretty briefly, yeah. Yeah. Um, so having a concrete, a very concrete goal is one of the things that can be difficult to do within research because if you stick too much to one thing, then you don't necessarily leave yourself open to some of the other opportunities. That said, we have a bunch of things that we, themes, I, would, I think I'd like to call them themes. We've agreed on calling them themes that we'd like to move forward. Um, the first one is, we wind up calling it learning by doing, but it's taking advantage of the richness of the digital medium in order to help people understand concepts better. Um, that can mean any number of things. It's, it's a pretty open theme. The second one is tools for thinking. And that has to do with the fact that when you design a tool um, that's very powerful, it actually allows you to think more powerful thoughts. Um, and then the third of the top, there's many themes, but... These are the top three. The third one is about drawing on the strengths of human interaction. And that has to do with allowing humans to do what humans are great at and computers to do what computers are great at and having this to augment each other rather than one trying to replace the other. Um, I think a good example of that is the, the interpersonal relationship between like a fantastic mentor or teacher and a student is something that you can't necessarily replace with a computer. On the other hand, computers provide this really great sort of anonymity and a feeling of non-bias. So in situations where somebody might be embarrassed or kind of need something a little bit less personal, there's there's an advantage to using a computer or a digital interaction there. So so how can we have those two things work with each other? Um, those are those are the top three. How much time in thinking did it take to arrive at those top three? Or is that still evolving? We spent a couple of months. Um, I, I would say it's it's still evolving and I mean th those are those are influenced by all of the thoughts that we've been thinking for a very very long time yeah um, and so they, they just kind of poured out yeah I think it's very similar to the um I don't know if you you y'all know this parable of the I can't it's like a Chinese artist that does I think the emperor asks for a brush painting and they say oh okay you want a painting of that and he does it in 30 seconds and hands it over and it's worth like insane amounts of, of value um, they say, well, it only took you a few seconds. Well, actually, it took like all of these years of like practicing yeah. and thinking about it beforehand that you can't possibly really take into account. So. The uh, the artist who did the Great Wave at Kanagawa, do you remember? Mm -hmm. Hokusai. Uh, yes. He did Red Leaves in a River, and mm -hmm. it was just dipping a chicken's feet in red paint and letting it run across the thing, and he, he like gave it to an emperor, and the emperor was like pissed or something. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So the one thing I add to that answer is um, that we're looking on a on a longer time horizon so we're looking on a like a five-year time horizon for for all of these themes there, there are things that we could think of and maybe we could try to ship right now mm -hmm. um, but for each of those things we're thinking okay like what is what's the long-term version of that idea like what, what would it mean to like really take that to its conclusion or systematize it or think about it more broadly or um, more deeply now is that 2022 or is that a perpetual five-year horizon uh, i think perpetual yeah i mind. mean it's, it's an interesting question like um I corresponded a little bit with alan Kay 
when we were thinking subtle name drop <laughs> just before this and, and and i mean and also he has this publicly on a bunch of his talks which is just that mm-hmm. if you set the, your time horizon too close you won't do the right things in those first one or two years you won't necessarily like make the tools with which you are going to make your inventions for example and mm. sometimes the tools with which you make your inventions actually wind up being more powerful than the end products themselves mm-hmm. um so we very much adopted that philosophy yeah i think when when I think perpetual, it's it's kind of, I think it's I think it's like five years about a particular idea, but then we have lots of ideas going at once. So at any yeah. given time, there's something that like okay, we've kind of started fleshing out and we've taken it down a path a little bit, but then there's new ideas that are still just sketches, they're still just germinating. So then, by being involved with the engineering and design teams, do you like kind of pass those things off when there's something ready to That's create? The <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that like some of that, yeah, some of that has already happened, even if it's not necessarily like make this thing. There are things that we get to learn about in our work that then influence things that are happening on the product teams mm. um, or or help enforce things that are happening already. Like, I think one of the big things that we did when we started was realize, like, well, if we're going to be thinking about learning, we should really be also working with somebody who's actually had direct classroom experience and is part of the math education and research community. And so uh, we're now, I guess we think of it like a tripod, you know, we have uh, technology, design, and pedagogy. And um, so we, we have another researcher named uh, Scott, uh, who's joined us, and he spent many years teaching in Oakland Unified, and so he has all this hands-on experience, uh, but he's also been trying to make novel kinds of learning materials. And uh, one of the things that we're so excited about with the work that we're doing is that um, it's not often enough that these three disciplines are really brought together in a serious way. You know, often it's just the technologist and the designer, maybe, but they don't really know anything about the pedagogy, and so you get this uh, techno saviorism kind of situation. <laughs> yeah. Now, what is techno saviorism? I guess it's like a. Fr- it's kind of similar to white nar- the white narrative, uh, white savior narrative, which actually is amazing enough that it has its own Wikipedia article. Um, except it's more about tech saving the world directly on its own. Mm-hmm. With enough oh. machine learning algorithms. <laughs> That's right. It's a sort of like idea that because we understand the technology problem space so well, and it solves so many problems, that we can solve any problem just with technology without listening to the people that have been trying to solve that problem. Is this similar to if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. a lot like that. Is that becoming more prevalent or less prevalent? Mm. <laughs> it definitely feels like human nature. I think it's like, you know, when you specialize in something, it kind of gives you a particular lens and it's pretty natural to see the world only through that lens. But I think that's part of the reason to surround yourself with people that are so different from you and see things differently. Well, then the the kind of devil's advocate question would be like, I have this set of skills that I can use to try and make the world better. Should I not use that set of skills? You should you collaborate. absolutely should. And they should make sure that you listen to other people as well. It's just a little, a little shot of humility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what? I mean, what? I, what is that? Like, just, yeah. you know, take a little, take a dose. You know, humility. It's a good thing. Um, the, the other thing that happens, and, and I think this is a little bit different, which is more to do with a lack of resources, is that people that are very well versed in education or have a lot of classroom experience will also attempt to make technological solutions, but oftentimes don't have the resources to great design or great technologists. And so you see these solutions come out and they're very difficult to use or they don't scale well or they have like just technical issues. So it's like if we bring these worlds together, maybe we could actually do something more. How much do you think the person you collaborate with has to understand technology? Like Scott, 
Yeah. Some. Is it important for him to? <laughs> yeah. Is it important for him to understand the way you think, or yes. do you prefer that he comes in with like pure? Computers exist. We, <laughs> right, we kind right. of go we've for, we've covered. gone for the whole like, t- have you heard about this T-shaped hiring yes. sort of philosophy? Yeah. So that's like, you know, everybody understands a I little see. bit of everybody else's perspective, but they specialize sure. in one. And I think, you know, Annie is an engineer with incredible taste in design and like understanding. Um, I actually have a computer science electrical engineering degree, um, too. <laughs> and uh, and I've been spent most of my career doing design. And then, you know, Scott came to us when actually my partner, Federico Ardila, who's a professor of mathematics and a researcher at SF State, was noticing that this one student, instead of turning in his his homework like every other student, he was tur- like that, you know, maybe on a piece of paper or like an image, um, Scott was turning in interactive homework, like uh, above and beyond what he was being asked to do. What? <laughs> What's interactive homework? Well, so, so it she, grades you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was um, getting a, a master's of arts in education, uh, and um, so you know the classes on pedagogy. And so his homework is to make homework, not homework literally, but activities, learning activities. So um, my partner Federico Ardila's classes were just in mathematics. He she, she doesn't teach mathematical pedagogy. He only teaches math, math. But, for example, if there was some sort of advanced geometry class with a geometric concept embedded in it, instead of drawing a diagram or drawing a diagram and giving words, Scott was making, using GeoGebra, um, I think he was using GeoGebra or Desmos, I think it was GeoGebra. Yeah, both, I think. Both of them. He would Those make, are things, I guess. Yeah, they're things. We can link to them. <laughs> yeah, People can play okay. with them. They're fun. Um, he was making sort of what you might expect to see in a textbook, like some sort of diagram, except that you could actually touch elements of the geometry, interact with it, and see how other things changed when you played with it, hmm. for, as an example. Those tools are just pushing a little bit, right? And so, and so I remember we we had this conversation with Scott pretty early on when we were talking with him. And, and I think he had the... I think the thing that was in his head was like, so you want to hire me to like make lots of cool GeoGebra and Desmos activities that these are existing like interactive education tools um, so that we can like, I don't know, maybe build towards a curriculum or towards a system. And we're kind of like, no, those tools are like the first step down what we think of as a long path. And actually what we want you to think of is like, we will literally build like the whatever GeoGebra equivalent is like that matches the pedagogy in your head for whatever subject it is that you need. Like we'll we'll just make that, and then we can make the learning activity that you have in your head happen, right. uh, rather than like confining to this tool that exists right now. And then like eyes lit up, and then you know yeah. we, we knew we had a collaboration. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the other thing about it is that right now we're just touching the tip of the iceberg with all that's possible with these things. Um, so one of the things that we really want to be able to dig into is like, what are the principles that make these things successful in the first place? Um, what actually works when you put them in front of students or like you have teachers use them in classrooms or people are using them on their own. Um, right now, there's a lot of really awesome interactive, like even the New York Times Interactive makes these amazing, like the, the sort of explorable explanations. But we haven't yet, ha- as a community that makes these things, had a chance to go through and generalize. Like, what is it that makes these things successful? Like what works better than other things for specific audiences or particular kinds of concepts? Or do they actually work better? Are they just 
flashy. Right. Some of them might not at all. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, York Times Interactive Group actually kind of decided that uh, for a number of the things they were doing, uh, the, the answer was no. Like they, they ended up like backing off on a lot of the interactivity in favor of like having scrolling drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, yeah. the fine line uh, after like they did a bunch of interactive stuff and then they came back to the fine line, which is just scroll driven. And I was kind of surprised, but it was also really cool to look at. I'm not sure how to ask this in the right way. Is it the interactivity itself that just activates people's brain more, brains more, and makes them perhaps more engaged in content? Or is it the output of the interaction that is better? Does that make sense? Like, is it the fact that you're having them do something that just turns their brain on? Or is it the thing itself that is providing value? By it being interactable, does it become failable like is does it become public like do you have to solve it then well i just think of it can be very easy to confuse people if before you do anything you tell them to hold a string of seven numbers in their head yeah right because then they're going to spend their whole time trying to remember these seven numbers and anything you ask after that's going to be very confusing yeah or hard to remember right i kind of that the same thing like you've activated their brain in such a way but this time for good like we've activated and now we're going to teach you things I think of it kind of like giving people a control over a, like a another dimension. There's certain like, you know, for example, animation of the unit circle and the trigonometric relationship between like sine, cosine. Ah, uh, yes. It's really cool. <laughs> I want to. Hmm. I made people dance to it yesterday. Trig is not arbitrary. It has deep and beautiful roots. It's really cool. Shapes. Scott was telling us the other day how like there's an animated GIF of this this particular identification and it's so fun like because if you want to animate things with code like you just need to understand this one thing and then you can just make things move in all kinds of cool ways that are way better like easing than- and stuff yeah. with, which is yeah. trigonometric yes okay. exactly um so that kind of thing like there's a little animated gif i guess that that scott was saying comes up every once in a while and every time it comes up people say like the top comments are all this explained to me is this the how pie this, one? How this works better than anything that anybody's tried to say to me in the last four years. It's the circle rotating and the point being the... Yeah, the X, Y coordinates being, yeah. yeah. Okay. So sine, and, sine and cosine. So that the animated GIF of that, that like there's many of them and they sort of circulate every so often. People oftentimes say, that explained this concept to me better than anything that I've seen in a long time. So that's one dimension, right? You've got, you've got your image and then you have time. The next dimension is like you give the user control over time. And now we're all time lords. Problem solved. And, and, and that's like Wait, a, you get, that, that was a big <laughs> cliffhanger. <laughs> well, that, that's like a, that's a simple thing. Like just let them scrub through the animation, right? But it could be more than that. Right. They could decide branching in time. Or, or they could control multiple parameters simultaneously. Or they could see that sometimes something can't actually be directly controlled. You can only control the environment around it, kind of like in The Sims. But all of this is important because interactivity is not the end, right? And that that would be technocentrism, and like we're, we're not we're not about that. Yes, we're not okay. about like right. oh, like we could do the cool thing with the technology, so we must instead. Actually, a, a cool thing that uh, has been a, a great part of my experience learning technology stuff is that in order to make contributions to learning you have to form a theory about how it is that people learn in the first place mm. because your belief about that question uh, will affect what you think a good learning activity might be. And so if you believe that um, 
people are like a bucket and you can like open up their head like a bucket and pour knowledge. <laughs> I generally assume that. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that a lot, a lot of people, people think that way. And actually, one of the things that, that Scott mentioned, and I think is true, that a lot of beginning instructors think that 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 people's brains work that way. They're like this empty vessel or partially empty vessel and you pour the knowledge in and then you close it up and then the person can go away and do the thing and like know it. Mm-hmm. But um, an, an alternative view that um, I find more persuasive is the view that we each individual constructs knowledge. Knowledge can only be constructed and integrated by the individual. You can't put it in their head. You can expose them to information. You, you, you can put the things in front of them on the table, which they can then pick up and connect in a way that's meaningful to them. And so if I give you a lecture, I I talk at you, uh, you might be able to take the pieces of knowledge that I give you in that lecture and connect them in the right way so as to construct the, the idea in your head. But if instead I let you play with the ideas and manipulate them, then uh, we may increase the chances that you construct them in, in a personally meaningful way. It's like arguments, right? Like you have to have a shared basis with the person arguing a yeah. point yeah. to, to get the Absolutely. understanding. Exactly. Okay. Absolutely. Exactly. I think so, that's why like you, probably in many conversations you've had, if you're trying to explain something, you're having difficulty com- yeah. conversing about it. You figure out what they understand yeah. and then you link what you're trying to express. Yeah. You have to work back backward to their level and then pull it back up. That's Looks- exactly it. You, you meet their mental model and then bring it forward. Yes. So when I was in high school and college, there there was this idea that there's like kinesthetic learners and visual learners and audio learners, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that a myth or is that real? Cause it sounds like well, maybe I, perhaps you're saying that like the interactivity, that kinesthetic is, is that a catch all? So I think it, I would or, point out actually the most, you know, one of the really <laughs> interesting things that you're bringing up, and this is this is very relevant because we were just spending a lot of time talking about this yesterday, is that these theories, like the one you're talking about, there are new ones all the time. And if you look at the last hundred years of people's theories about how people learn, it's like, pop science, right? Like that's just, we don't know. Metacognition is hard, yo. Not not what you're doing, but like that concept is yeah. like a pop culture thing. It's like areas of tasting on your tongue. Like it's a myth. Right. And you, you can but also it, argue that like a lot of the serious work in this space is also a pop culture. Um, it's uh, these, these these trends come and go uh, often without any serious proof. Yeah, and then they affect policy. And we don't know what it means for there to be serious proof. By the way, like we don't know how to measure a lot of this stuff. Yeah, in a way that one trusts. Yeah, we were working with a very experienced educator. We were, we were having this great lunch conversation yesterday, and one of the things that she said was, "We don't really actually know how to assess anything." <laughs> you just gotta start weighing thoughts like you're Scientologists. Problem solved. But but I guess back to your question, like it doesn't. Um, it, it's not necessarily. It's not about the kinesthesis of the interaction. It, it's about um, the idea that you can take an idea or a set of ideas and kind of take them apart and reconstruct them in different ways. Um, and one of those ways might stick to something that you already know. So um, one one theory of learning is that it's analogical, um, i.e., it's it's made up of analogies. So uh, every every new idea you're you're connecting to ideas you already have, and people have different sets of people have different sets of ideas coming into a given thing, and so uh, if you can kind of manipulate the idea, then um, you can maybe like get it into a shape that matches the shape that's already in your head. So I'm trying to just catch up to like the level you guys are. Th- 
Well, because so based on doing that in like half that, an hour is going to be hard. Right. So <laughs> yeah, it's uh, an impossible goal. But based on that argument, it would seem that every single person has different analogies in their head based on the context of how they grew up, how they their family, social, cultural, That's language, all that kind of stuff. So how how do you two think about addressing that? The fact that every person might have different analogies that trigger the connection that is learning. Well, I think so. one of the things that's super cool about the digital medium is also that like it can be a platform dynamic. and you can generate, yeah, like the dynamic medium. You can generate multiple things. There might be different things that work for different people, but you know, roughly there might be groupings. A tool is a tool and a medium are more pervasive than a sentence. Sorry, not more pervasive, or more versatile than a sentence. Right. Um, so it, if I have a graphing calculator, I can use that to solve a problem. On a, on a worksheet. I can use that to draw art. I can use that to, to make a game. I can use that um, as an implement in a conversation. Uh, and because it's so versatile, I can mold it into something that's meaningful to me and to the goals that I have, it'll be relevant. Um, and so uh, if, if we can make something that's more like a medium or a tool than a particular like explanation for a particular concept, then um, students are personally empowered to use that to solve the an analogy problems or mismatches that they have. Right. I think that another kind of something along the lines of what you're saying is that I think when you're trying to learn something, sometimes somebody provides an explanation. It doesn't work for you. Unlike a, an amazing, a lot of really great teachers will try something else for you. Or, you know, I guess another way of looking at it is if you're using a some new technology that you've never used. You search Google, you look for videos of people demoing how to use it. And you might look at the first thing and you're like, I don't it's understand what this guy's doing. functioning as a functionalist by Andy Matushak. <laughs> <laughs> and then you pull, pull up another video if, well, that one would probably work. But if there was one that didn't work, then you would probably go to the second link and see, well, oh, and then until you find the one that does work for you. But we can actually, you know, potentially create a platform where you can do that naturally inside the platform. I think... I think kind of to, to your earlier point about these different theories or kind of how you were saying that there was this theory that was prevalent at the time is one that was prevalent at the beginning of the century was really influenced by like Pavlov, Pavlov and yeah. like the idea that, you know, you just train people to exhibit a particular behavior with reward and then they can spit it back. And so everything was kind of formed around that um, as far as like how we might educate people. Ah, uh, the Vancouver police principle. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. um, that, that was a very powerful idea. And uh, there's been sort of like an ebb and flow of its power. It's it's very alluring that if we if we give every student the same stimulus, we'll get the same response. Right. Or we can train them to have a particular response for a particular stimulus. But that was very like but earlier even, on last century. Now a lot of the theories are more around, at least from what we understand, and, and I should say like we are just learning about this now as part of our work. We but, are dilettantes. Yes. Um <laughs> Is, is that uh, you're also affected by your environment and your context and kind of what you're bringing up, that everybody's got a different context, everybody, and, and that the same student in a totally different context, even with the same activity, might perform differently with different people around them, which I've personally experienced. Sure, sure. Have you two had fundamental disagreements as you've embarked on this? Yeah, topic? definitely. Definitely. Uh, so actually, so while, while you I, I wanna, ask that, I want to know what that is, but I want to like hear how you two fight about fundamental disagreements and arrive at a place where you're still friends and like <laughs> yeah. I, I have to Are say like this is also relationship advice for the world Ooh. but like yeah. if you you know being in a relationship there can be the fun times there can be all of that but like 
the way that you sort out the really difficult things is is really what's going to make or break anything. And I think one of the things that I really like about working with Andy is when we have these super difficult fundamental disagreements, we're able to get to a better place and listen to each other, even if like in the moment it can be super harrowing. I think that's why like over the last, especially the last two years when we've been working more closely together, we've made it through all kinds of like conversations that I think a lot of people don't make it through and and come out better for it. Or don't have. I mean, I, th- I think that's one of the other issues is that like, we, do, we do talk about this stuff. It's because our work is driven by, is driven by values and convictions that... Um, are, are strong, and uh, so it's it's really important that not necessarily that we agree on all of those things, but that we understand where the other person's coming from. Um, argument is just dog fooding. Argument is just dog fooding. You're like uh, using your research. Ar- argument actually makes <laughs> me think of an explorable because you have to like poke at things from different angles. <laughs> yeah, um, but I mean, I think I think how do we do it? I don't know. If it, for me, anyway, it, it bottoms out at respect. Uh, there's there's sort of a perfect knowledge thing where uh, I respect Maylee and I know that she respects me and I know that she knows that I know et cetera et cetera uh, and so I, like we can have these disagreements and I don't I don't feel like damage is being done mm. um, and so I, I think that allows for openness. You're also both just really nice. <laughs> Does that help? We can be not nice sometimes. Um, I mean, you know, that's that's the thing. Like, okay, we're nice, but um, our work, as I said, is driven by really powerful convictions, and so we're nice, but we can be strident, right? Like, we we believe things strongly, and you know, maybe like it's going to come out strongly. I I think sometimes sometimes I think the arguments that we have, like sometimes we've had arguments in front of other people in the organization, and I'm like, are we scaring them? Yeah, we, the, the Khan Academy, the organization, it's very, it's very nice. Um, and everybody, very nice. everybody's everybody also very, to, very kind. Uh, yeah, everybody kind of wants to just resolve the conflict. And, yeah, <laughs> do you? Yeah. We'll definitely dig in. Do you believe that your convictions can be proven objectively through data, or do you believe that data can be contradictory to your contradiction, contradiction to your? convictions? Um, I think the thing about data is that some there's certain aspects of data that can be very difficult to collect. Mm-hmm. And in a system where like all the data was perfect um, and that we somehow reconciled the way that data can appear different to different people, that perception and data were like somehow taken into account, maybe. But that to me sounds like an incredibly complicated problem. So some of the things that I think have been difficult conversations for us have to do with like, you know, I I come from the background that I come from and having been, well, one thing I love about Andy is that like super respects intelligent women win, which is really <laughs> great. <laughs> That's already like a huge thing of having, you know, me having worked in tech for as long as I have. Um, but also like a lot of the times like my community is a lot of black and brown people that are working in education and the problems in education are inextricable from a lot of societal structural problems. Um, and so I think a lot of our kind of more difficult conversations have been about some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. This is obvious, well, perhaps not obviously, but it's certainly a place where I'm ignorant, uh, comparatively speaking. And so uh, I, I learn a great deal from uh, from this work about about equity and about social issues, uh, the work of trying to do good in the educational spaces 
inextrinsically linked, uh, inextricably linked to uh, these issues. How do you know if you're doing? Yeah, good? How do, right, right. How do I mean, you, I, I hear the data question, and we just dodged it. I mean, th there are questions that can be meaningfully answered with data because we know how to, uh, because we know how to make meaningful measurements. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, this this also gets to just like a question of like what is and and how do you know what you know? Mm -hmm. um, and is thought measurable? <laughs> is, uh, like yes, thought is probably measurable, although we don't know how, and and that yeah. that's actually a key thing. Um, how do we know what we know? Well, like, for, well, one thing is that, like, I, I don't, I don't actually believe that data can prove that something is true. Uh, I, I think that data can be suggestive. I think that I can form an explanation that uh, I believe is most likely, and I think that I can like uh, accept one, uh, one particular explanation for a phenomenon as being most likely. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that I think that like data can prove that it is true. Uh, you know, maybe you can like prove a logical proposition, for instance. But like those, those are not the propositions that we're talking about. I see. Like <laughs> meaning is nebulous is, is ultimately the moral. Right. Like, so one one of the one of the things that's one of the things I'm going to give you a really concrete example. So this is like a, this exercise um, that we're working on with Scott right now, which is like when a student gives a correct answer to a problem, does it mean they understand the concept that the problem was going to get to? Mm -hmm. The answer to that is it depends. Was their answer really correct though? Because meaning is nebulous. <laughs> Isn't it depends also the most frustrating outcome? I, it's the answer to everything. I mean, I think that's one that... of one of the one of the things that I I love about research, and I think it's part of the probably part of the problem that not as many people are attracted to thinking about things in the long term and thinking about long term research is precisely that problem. Most people just want a simple answer to something. I mean, if you look at politics, right? Everybody just wants you to just say the thing. It's like black or white, and it's this dichotomy. But most things in the world are not like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think I think. It's very likely that that all of us have had the experience of like in school having passed a test on something. It's like, yeah, I was able to like do the thing. Do I understand it? <laughs> I yeah. get no. it. I know everything <laughs> yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah, actually that's the amazing thing. I remember times at Apple where like there's again, basic I don't know why trigonometry keeps on coming up, but there's like basic <laughs> trigonometry that was like not happening among a group of incredibly advanced engineers, which is mind-blowing. But they don't have to use it all the time. So people just look it up again until they understand, you know. But they I'm sure they all scored very well on those tests back in the day, but that doesn't doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. mean anything. So if the test question, if all the data says the person knows the thing, um, what does that mean? Well, it might mean that they can perform the skill. And that's different from do they understand the concept? I really like the story about you and this uh, and and tan and the tangent. Oh my gosh! Yeah, uh, this is a good tangent. This is this, uh, this, 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 this is this is hard to do yes. on a podcast, actually. But um, yeah, I, I I learned this year about uh, the the geometric meaning of tangent, and I had never known that before. I only knew it as being defined as sine over cosine, or alternately, the tangent of an angle is defined as the ratio of the uh, opposite uh, side length over the adjacent side length. And that just like wisdom passed down from the math gods. So Katoa. Uh, but actually there's a beautiful <laughs> definition that all of you are going to be very frustrated that I can't give to you right now because it's visual. But, but if, we if can link it to up, it. We can link to it from the notes. <laughs> this is helpful. Yeah, we can yeah. put it in the show notes. Yeah, and it's just so stupid. Like, Brian, I, I, can you like, draw I'm, us and put it in the show notes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm mad. Like I, I was, I was <laughs> deprived. Like this is beautiful and this makes sense. And instead, I was made to memorize a formula, mm -hmm. uh, and I happened to succeed in memorizing it. And so, like later on in life, I was able to like do that thing. But this is beautiful, uh, and it had a number of consequences as well. Like as soon as I saw that, I saw a whole bunch of other things. 
uh, and I'm I'm so furious that I was deprived of um, this way of understanding trigonometry. And, and this one example really represented like the entire way that I learned math in high school. And what's which, the thing? What's that? What's the thing? What's the tangent? Thing? Uh, I I can't tell you. It's visual. Um, we'll, we'll, you can show we'll give you, me. We'll give you a link. <laughs> yeah. We'll give you a link. Yeah. I, I, you know, we can draw it. Basically, like the, uh, on the unit circle, there there is a length that corresponds to the tangent of a particular angle, and it's it is literally the tangent uh, of the hypotenuse of the triangle uh, to the circle. Uh, that tangent to the x-axis, the length of that line, uh, is the value of tangent of the angle, which is beautiful and makes sense. And uh, I'm just furious. So, in case in case anybody has trouble corresponding the word beauty to what we're talking about. Mm. Um, I think the kind of beauty that we're describing is the kind of beauty that happens mentally when something finally makes sense to you in a deeper way. It maps to a model. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Why was it named tangent? I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, if you don't, if you don't know, the, if, if you don't know this interpretation, it's just arbitrary. You are mad. <laughs> Holy I'm so shit. mad. Yeah. Well, because it represents the way that math is taught. Yeah. It's memorization. It's a rote memorization. Right. When it's actually really pretty. <laughs> it's beautiful. It, uh, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I like have this question bubbling, but I, I haven't formed it quite enough. But it, it's something along the lines of, oh, shit. I think I know <laughs> the answer. But is it important to understand or like, is it enough to have the skills to do a thing? and do that thing well and get paid to do it and live your life? Or is it important to understand? I think of like, mm. mm-hmm. should you understand I'm, why I'm, I'm instead of to, how? I'm trying to think, uh, uh, yeah, or does I'm, why well, matter? So, I'm trying to map this back to design. I, I, like, I, know, I think I, I, I have an answer for you. I can repeat the design process over and over and over again, right? Right. I can design screens for the rest of my life. I, I think but I'm do an, I understand I th- what I... I think I have an answer okay, for you. Okay, okay. So I think... Basically, like, you know, as a human race, we can take, we could have the underlying assumption that we understand everything now. Like everything that we lay out in front of you, the world as it is today is great. We know everything. Everything we know today is fact. We're, we're awesome. Or we can say, clearly there's a couple things that aren't quite that great. We could invent new things to make the future better. So if you're going to invent new solutions to things, then you need to actually usually understand the reason why you're doing things a certain way. So it's a little bit like that story of the people that cut the ends off the meat for the fry before they put it in the pan. And like several generations later, they don't know why they're cutting the ends off the meat to put this thing in the pan. And I'm it turns so confused. Out, I don't know what that means. You know, okay. So <laughs> I haven't the, heard this Oh, you haven't heard the story. story. Okay. Like- the story is that there's, there's somebody, a daughter who cuts the end, end off the meat, or let's say a son for the fun, who cuts the ends off the meat before putting it in the pan. And at some point in time, like their child says, why do you do that? And they said, I don't know. I do. I did it because my parents did it. And then they ask their parents and they say, oh, well, I did that because actually the pan was too small. Right. So there's, they mm-hmm. didn't, they didn't need to do that. They could just get a better pan the next generation or like a larger one, I should say, and, and just cook it that way. But so unless you understand the concept or the reason why you're doing something, it's much harder to innovate like on the solution. But it always, mem- it always maps the model at the time. When the thing was created, right? Right. So if you know that the thing was created with this mental model and then the mental mm-hmm. model of the human race shifts, then you then you understand how to shift the solution. That brain pan. But if you're just, if it's just, yeah, the brain pan. <laughs> exactly. It's like sizzling. Um, 
But if you don't understand the underlying reasons, then you'd never get there, right? You just you would just repeat a procedure without thinking. And then your computer. There will always be new problems. Right. And so we'll always need new solutions. Hmm. Not that I believe them, but like, is that important to keep coming up with new problems so that we can just? Oh, keep we're not coming them? up with them. I mean, the, the world is coming up with them. Uh, we're learning new ways to understand. There, there, there will be new diseases. Yeah. Uh, there will new. There will be new urban problems uh, because maybe our cities are getting denser, or maybe because we don't have cars on the road anymore. And so, like, how are we going to adapt the cities to deal with that? Oh, wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) Can we have that problem? That'd be a nice problem. There there will always be new problems. And like, it's not, it's not like we're inventing them. Like the problems are are meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. The problems will keep arising. Uh, My question for you is how do we as people, as designers, as engineers, make sure that we're working on the right problems that the world puts in front of us? And that's a great question. I think one of the things I've asked myself is... And this sometimes gets called like the five whys. Um, I've never heard like, that phrase. You haven't heard the five whys? I've, I've heard like who, what, when, where, why. I've no, never heard the five whys. It. It's, it's really good. Yeah. So anytime that you think of something that you want to work on or you see a problem or you see something happening, you ask yourself why. And you take that first explanation and then ask yourself, why is that happening? And then you repeat that five times until you get to the underlying problem. Interesting. It's like an engineering postmortem. That's where I learned it. And then you work the other way, right? Then you say, okay, well, now that I understand the root, now let's work forward and talk about what we're going to do. Okay. Then there's a couple of different things that come into play, right? Like what is your area of expertise? Like what can you contribute? All of that types of things. What if you get one of the whys wrong? What if one of your assumptions is invalid? (laughs) It's probably going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably going to happen. And what, what, I mean, what's cool about that is that if you decide like, well, I'm going to look at the root underneath that, then at some point in time, you're going to figure out that you were wrong. Especially if, if you go into it with an open mind and actually listen to the people that have maybe been involved with that problem for longer than you have. If you were to start your five whys right now, what's the first why question you would ask? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> you're doing this podcast (laughs) (laughs) why did i bring this up i think for me it might be something like why in this era of so much abundance are there still so many people who are not able to contribute at the same level as others when it comes to problem solving um and when it comes to problem solving a lot of the things that we know are happening like the planet is burning up and um, that that might be a good place to start. <laughs> That's a pretty uh, big place to start. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, all of the things that go along with that um, of like, you know, uh, non, non-equitable distribution of resources, the fact that some people are still living in conditions that seem like it's 2016, why do we necessarily have to have people living in these conditions? Whether those be... Um, you know, physical conditions or, you know, social conditions. Um, it just feels like we think of ourselves as pretty advanced and yet all those things are happening. Mm-hmm. So why? And then, so you, you just, I guess, to play this forward, like you give some possible answers like, well, okay, there's there's like these huge socioeconomic inequalities, et cetera, et cetera. And then we ask, okay, well, like, well, why are there those things? Mm-hmm. And then we come up with other answers and then we say like, well, why, why is that? Uh, and then we might bottom out at education. 
or or around some other stuff. I mean, I, I don't know. For, for, for me, there, there was there was a set of things that I was interested in, and, and then uh, one of the big things that I thought about was um, what's the probability that this thing succeeds, given that I work on it, mm-hmm. uh, versus just the probability that it succeeds just in general. So, doing things that matter can relate not only to the problem. Does is there value in the solution to this problem? But am I the best person to work on? Yeah, like Maylee right. May said earlier, you know, you have some particular set of skills, some background, and, and frankly, things that you're excited about. Um, because if you if you have that emotional reaction to it, you're gonna go further. Is that crippling if you can't, or if another person who has a better set of skills doesn't step up? Could you could you try and phrase that a different way? If you are the only person interested in the problem, despite not having a particular set of skills to handle that problem, is should you still be focusing on that? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I say yes um, because the so there's there's like there's two quantities that matter. You know, mm-hmm. uh, what's the chance of it happening if you do it versus what's the chance of it happening in general? And mm-hmm. If the chance of it happening in general is really poor because yeah, people have the skills, but no one's going to do it. Okay. Then okay, you still got to do it. Okay, right. And then you know if you are if you do feel like you don't have the great skills to tackle that problem, but you really care about the problem, then I think the problem of tackling, uh, learning those skills is actually a lot more solvable mm-hmm. than the problem that you're probably interested in solving. <laughs> so yeah, you have like extra motivation to gain those skills to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's a value judgment, right? To say that this problem's worth solving. So how I think of... It seems cliche here to say like, oh, we're building all these first world problem apps like to <laughs> yeah. get people to share more stuff on and on and on. Yeah. Like it Is that our value? <laughs> yeah. 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 Or like and, and at the end of the day, what are we maximizing? That whole like the you know, Joe Joe Edelman like, wrote some fantastic things about that. But if we're maximize if we're trying to maximize people clicking on things because that's how we're generating revenue for where we're working, um, like what are we what are we actually like helping people do and are we adding to for example like people's confirmation bias in general because we're giving them things that they're going to click on that's automatically a decaying model too right like at some point that becomes less valuable but people get paid a lot of money to do that for companies Mm -hmm. so like how do you convince them to not is that a moral argument well that that gets back to the fear thing right so part of it is like listen it's okay like it's okay i mean I think one thing that we should mention is that we, I I don't know, I at least found myself in a position where I was like, I can take a little bit of risk, not all the risk in the world, but I could take a little bit of risk and go work on one of these things. Or are you talking about the company's choice versus an individual's choice to work on something? No. Oh, sorry. The individual. Yeah. Mm, Okay. Like if you had a friend that gets paid a quarter million dollars to get people to click more stuff Mm -hmm. and you don't you don't think it's a very valuable problem to be solving. Right. So it, it comes it comes to that person's values, right? So I, I guess on the one hand, I'm not a relativist. Like I, I don't think, uh, I, 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 whatever, I'm not going to dig into that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that person probably, um, probably would be mostly as happy um, with maybe, I don't know, two thirds of that income or, or maybe less. Uh, and maybe they could do something that they valued more. Um, if it turns out that actually like what they're doing is the thing that they value most in the world, um, then maybe that's, maybe that's okay. Um, and I'm going to skip the discussion for now about how, uh, maybe their value system is wrong. I think a lot of people do yearn for things that are more meaningful in their life. 
um, or if they don't, um, I mean, yeah, similar to Andy, I think that's just, that's just their values. But I, but I just feel like I run into a lot of people who, who do want a chance to work on something that they consider to be more meaningful. Yeah. It, it could be that they're working that job to be able to fund another problem being solved mm-hmm. at some point in exactly. the future. And that's real, but it's dangerous. Yeah. yeah that's so, very like a gamble. So, so for instance, you know, I, I was trying to save up money when I was at Apple to be an independent researcher. So that's cool. Right. And I could feel good about telling myself that it's like, I'm working towards the thing that has value, but you know what? I also lived in San Francisco mm-hmm. and I lived in kind of a nice apartment in San Francisco. I didn't have to do that. I could probably cut six, nine, maybe even 12 months off my timeline to being an independent researcher had I not done that. So it's very, mm-hmm. it's very dangerous. Yeah. There's game. the whole like spending into your lifestyle and yep. Yeah. That's hard. <laughs> I've seen some feels Weighing hard. self versus other is hard. It's, I mean, it's hard. I, 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 you know, I have to admit that this is a thought that still crosses my mind sometimes because then you, you, I think one of the, is- the other issues is that you could go the other route and say like, I'm going to accrue, millions or billions of dollars and then put them to good use the thing is at the end of the day like quote unquote good use that part also requires like fantastic people's minds into the real problem solving Mm -hmm. it's not just about handing out money there's real problem solving that has to happen on the ground and so like having a fantastic mind for making tons of money is is great that but that is one kind of problem solving you also need to have the people that actually know how to solve the problems and and that doesn't something that money necessarily can solve if you don't have the people's problem solving skills like on the ground does that make sense yeah there's another thing though which is that we well i'll say we in this room maybe not everyone who's listening to this podcast but a great many people are incredibly fortunate Mm -hmm. uh, to have gone to amazing schools to live in an amazing city to have an incredible network of people who support them uh, to have an opportunity at any point to fall back on incredibly high-paying jobs um and uh, you, uh, it's my view uh, that with that position comes an obligation. Uh, and that's not just like a touchy-feely obligation to do good, um, like, oh boy, like you better do a bunch of charity work, but to do something that matters with it. Mm-hmm. I think that some of it for me is also like incredibly personal, which is that so much of my experience, or especially the more recent experience of like actual work, meant leaving so much of myself at the door when I walked to go sit at my machine and do my daily work. And that stuff that I leave at the door is stuff that is totally accepted and um, things that I can show outwardly when I'm with a completely different group of people. And those people are not people that I was seeing in my workplace. And I just got tired of it. Mm -hmm. I, and I felt like I wasn't doing anything to help that directly or even very much indirectly. So I was thinking, well, how can I apply my skill to try and try and help that problem? Which is like, I guess it's slightly selfish and slightly unselfish. Like from, you, know, you could look at it either way, but it's like, I really, I really want to change the landscape that I'm sitting in on a daily basis. How do I solve that? <laughs> we're, we're sort of revolving around a, this like fear, this uh, importance. Uh, we like to end the show by asking what keeps you up at night. Uh, Maylee, you got to do this, I think. Uh, 
I don't think we got to that. We were. We Did we were not? So, I don't think we. I don't we know. went way over on time. Oh, yeah. Well, perfect. Uh, then we can end. Uh, what keeps you up at night? That there are better problems for me to be working on. That I'm not working hard or effectively enough on them. Um, that I'm lazy. That I'm unsuccessful. That's poisonous, right? How do you deal with that? Meditation. Ah. <laughs> so I, I know these concerns very well. I'm excited yeah. to hear your solution. No, there isn't a solution. Well, maybe there is. I don't know the solution. <laughs> Have you felt that there is a significant difference in meditation? There's some difference. I started a few years ago. I think one of the things that keeps me up at night since there are, there are many, but also I, I do tend to run myself into the ground, so I tend to pass out pretty quickly, which is great. Um, <laughs> so not literally. <laughs> which is so, I mean, it's a blessing. Um, but one of them is that one of the standards I hold myself to pretty strictly is that, and I kind of mentioned one of, one of my motivations for doing what I do now, um, and we talk about this in our research group also, which is it's not just about the output of our work, but the way that we do our work the way that we interact with each other, the kinds of behaviors that we ourselves embody. It's like, don't just talk about it, be about it, right? Um, and so that means that I have to have an entire other thread of computation happening in my brain all the time about the way that I'm actually behaving and interacting with other people, the processes that we're having and how I'm choosing to spend my time. So, so it winds up being double reflection not just about the work, but how I'm acting, how I'm interacting with other people, how we're structured and all those types of things. Um, and how that, not just like at a micro level, but also how that interacts with everything else um, in the greater context. Um, so that's that's just some light stuff. You two have- I'm glad you're multi-threaded. <laughs> <laughs> Very busy brains. Thanks for sharing a little bit of that. Thanks so much hour. for having us. That was cool. super fun. <laughs> yeah. That was, Yay. We don't usually get to talk about the problems. We usually talk more about how we tend to solve them, whether that's practically or how we've come to the point where we're trying to solve problems. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciated this. Oh, thank Great. you. Thank you. That was episode 166. Thank you to Andy and Maylee for coming and hanging out with us. This is super fun, super interesting, totally different, way deeper conversation than we usually get to. I haven't really ever considered the problems so much. Uh -huh. like, yeah. Yeah. It was very fun. Give us feedback. If you liked this episode, uh, the topics we covered, the two-person format, which we haven't done in a while, actually. Uh, we're on Twitter, at DesignDetailsFM. Hit us up anytime. Of course, if you're looking for more podcasts, you can find those at spec.fm. We have nine podcasts to help designers and developers level up. Our latest edition is Layout, a design podcast. Uh, again, go to spec.fm and you can keep listening. Before we go, of course, thank you so much to our two sponsors that made this episode possible. First up, Hired, the world's best way to find a job for designers. Uh, all you do is apply once to Hired, and once you're accepted, over 4,000 companies will then try and hire you. When you find a job through Hired, you're going to have a dedicated talent advocate that has your back at all times, giving you unbiased advice, coaching you, helping you put your best foot forward. Of course, they take your privacy very seriously so your current and past employers will not see that you're looking. They make it fast, focused, and of course, it's free. If you sign up at hired.com slash design details, when you get a job, they're going to give you a $2,000 bonus. Again, that's at hired.com slash design details. Thank you to Hired. Our second sponsor is, as always, Wayno. 
Wayno is our favorite agency. They're doing incredible, incredible work and sharing it with the community and supporting tons of useful, valuable things. Uh, they posted this piece on Medium about how they're supporting things that they think are just beneficial to the world. And I think that is one of the coolest things about an agency. We all know how hard it is for an agency to stay afloat, but the fact that they're dedicating their resources to really important things is huge. And they're not trying to sell you anything. They're sponsoring the show because they just want you to check them out. So go to Wayno.co, U-E-N-O dot C-O. You can read their case studies, check out their work on Dribble and get inspired. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram for funny jokes and latest shots of their rebrand. Really can't recommend checking out their work enough. It's truly incredible. They just released this new website for Zero. It's a debit card thing with credit card rewards or something like that. But the website is incredible. It's so good. Thank you again to Wayno for making this episode possible. Again, you can check them out at wayno.co. We'll see you next week.